From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, big companies invest in low-carbon products, the race to map the future of fleets and fuels, five policies that threaten U.S. clean energy markets, and why McDonald's is investing in soil carbon farming. It's sustainability from the ground up this week on 350. It's December 8, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me as always is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Happy days. Happy Hello. days. We missed you last night. As you know, we had our staff Green Biz hol- holiday party um, hosted at the lovely home of of our CEO, Eric Farrow, and his wife, Maxie. And uh, sorry you couldn't be there. I know you got a, it was a long trip to go to a short party, but you were missed. I toasted you with some eggnog from my own living room. <laughs> nice. Good. Glad to hear that. That's probably the only holiday cheer that we've got. <laughs> so much stuff going down. Oh my God, this tax bill. So what Patagonia did to protest the uh, rollback of, of Bears Ears and uh, Air, es, Staircase Escalante. Oh, um, where do we begin? <laughs> so, and, and that, that has been a debate on the staff for, for quite a number of weeks now, actually, if not months. But um, we're taking action, uh, and, and you'll hear a little bit more about this later, um, just try to really start more closely following some of the policies that could get in the way of corporate action. I mean, we we love that there is so much there are so many subnational actors, right? We hear that term a lot. Cities, states, and of course our very own green biz readership, the the corporations that are really continuing to drive forward and um I think, you know, for me, yes, it is it is hard to find cheerful <laughs> things and and things like the uh complete de- <laughs> rollback of almost uh, 85%, I think, they took away of of the Bear Eagers National Monument. And I just, you know, I have to really commend Patagonia. They dedicated their entire website to um, the proclamation, the president stole your land. I had a lot of friends in my social network uh, have started sharing that. And I, you know, and I didn't even incite it, (laughs) which, which to me was very indicative of how much, um, the general public is starting to pay attention to some of these things. And I'm, I take hope in that actually, Joel. Yeah. I mean, and Patagonia has been leading this charge for a long time on a number of, of issues over, over the years. This was a bolder stand than, than they or pretty much any other company has ever taken actually, you know, taking over their website uh, so that that's what you get when you go there is this, the president stole your land. By the way, there's a great piece in um, Outside Magazine called Patagonia's Big Business of Resist about sort of this political quest that Yvonne Chouinard and the founder of Patagonia and um, the whole company has been on for a long time. It came out back in July, and I it's a great read, and I encourage you to check that out just to get the flavor of what corporate activism really looks like, what, what leadership looks like, too. I mean, this has been one of my... Just questions, at what point is it appropriate for a, a company to really 
show up, stand up, speak up, act up on some of these just really crazy issues that are happening right now to strip policies that support clean energy, to strip what may be illegally the reducing the size of of national monuments and protected lands and sacred lands in some cases. You know, and yes, Patagonia is a privately held company, so they don't have some of the issues that publicly traded companies do. But it's good to see some companies stepping up. Yeah, and it's not just uh, their website, Joel. They are going to be lending money, if you will, to the to the suits that are going to be filed over this. I feel for the National Natural Resources Defense Fund and and on and, and the the environmental NGOs that, that are spending a lot of money right now on many fronts um, challenging some of these policies. But Patagonia is going to sue. And um, and they've actually managed to tie it. I mean, I, I, I empathize with the private sector kind of privilege they have, but they are tying this to business, their business. It's the outdoor industry. And they are, they've um, enlisted others in the outdoor industry, if you will, those, those businesses that rely on the great outdoors um, to help them. So this is uh, going to be an interesting industry, I think, effort to watch. Yeah. In fact, earlier this year, Patagonia led the charge to move the annual big, I think it's 10 or 20,000 person uh, outdoor industries association conference. I spoke, actually spoke at it this year in January from Utah to it's now going to Colorado, which welcomed it with open arms because they, Patagonia and, and other companies, but really led by Patagonia, wanted to not support the governor and the state that was doing a number of things, a uh, number of policies that were, they felt was, was anti-environmental. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, kudos to them. Um, we are going to follow um, the policy stuff a lot more closely. I, I, I was <laughs> chatting with Brian Janis, um, the energy director at, at Microsoft, this week, and um, you know I know that this is on the minds of many of my regular contacts, especially in the clean energy space, because it's very hard to set policies and to plan for next next year and beyond right now, um, just because we don't know what's going to happen with some of these incentives and and programs that are being very uh, well used in many cases, to support some of the, uh, for example, the power purchase agreements that we've heard about many times this year and so forth. So I know that this is, you know, I know that the corporate sector is acting outside of the regulations, but what we're trying to do is make sure that we are on top of the regulations that could um, mess with those policies. Can you say Energy Star? Yeah. I mean, that is just one of the things I I wrote about, you know, we wrote about that earlier this year. one of the most successful programs in, in U.S. history, $34 billion saved in energy costs. I mean, this is one of those great success stories. And that was in 2015, I think. But that's this is one of those great success stories from both like a consumer standpoint. It's helped consumers save on their energy bills. It's helped them reduce their costs without actually having it, it being in their face. Right? It just happens. You buy this appliance and it uses less energy. Boom. You know, it's just pretty simple. And and on the industry side, it, it's been incredibly beneficial. I mean, it's really pushed innovation. Someone would say it forced the appliance makers and the, you know, and the and the building code people and, and, and equipment and so forth to make changes maybe that they weren't, but it, it also has inspired a lot of innovation. 
Yeah, and who and whose public interest is it to get rid of it? The appliance manufacturers and, and computer manufacturers they seem to like it because it spurs innovation. It's helped them make better products, and the consumers like it. I, I don't really know. I think it's just plain mean. But you know what? Let's get on to happier stories. The week in review. So this week we're going to talk about two pairs of stories we did, um, two that have to do with low carbon or carbon negative products, and and a couple we'll get to in a minute uh, on sort of the future of fuels and transportations. But I, I love the piece. There's one that you did, Heather, and uh, another that um, Cassandra Sweet did on on how low this idea of low carbon products and and why it makes sense. And why we're getting on with these things. And now this is something we we wrote about two years ago in, in the 2016 State of Green Business report. We we sort of got into this notion of of um, carbon recycling and the growing promise of that, and the number of companies that were starting to you know find ways to take carbon, which is of course the, the substance of life, and it, it's really carbon pollution in the atmosphere that's the problem. Carbon itself is our friend. It's our life-giving ingredient. But how a number of companies like, like Air Carbon creating plastic from methane, and which is being used by Dell and a number of other companies. But it's time to update that, and I think that's part of what Cassandra was doing. Yeah, so, so Cassandra was able to um, attend a conference last week where it kind of was all in her face. And the examples that she used, she writes about in her story are Alphabet, Intel, and Walmart. And the headline is sort of why low carbon products make business sense. And she does a good job of reporting in on sort of what, what these three companies have been doing, um, you know, not just internally to, um, you know, make their own operations more energy efficient, more, you know, less carbon intensive and so forth. But in the investments they're making that could help others do the same, right? So we know that Intel, uh, Intel Inside, right, wants to be Intel Inside your automobile now. And um, they're very heavily into investments in autonomous vehicle technology and, and how those uh, vehicles and cars and cars and buses and whatever they are um, will, will lead to smarter um, transportation systems in the public and private sector. So if you haven't been keeping on top of it, but they've, they've got a lot going on in the sensor processing area and also connectivity. So, you know, how the cars communicate with each other and with larger cloud services that, that help analyze all the data. Yeah, and data, that's what a lot of this is about, like Flux, the... Um spin-off of Alphabet that is using data sharing software for building construction and design. Um, and uh, that's really where, you know, leveraging data, machine learning, artificial intelligence to really understand how to uh, do way more uh, efficient uh, products and and processes than we ever thought imaginable in terms of getting the most out of every piece of, of every bit of resource, uh, natural resource and, and energy. And we're starting to see that come into the marketplace and, um, and really, I think, will increasingly make a difference. And speaking of concrete results, you wrote about a couple of companies uh, that are on the quest to create carbon-negative concrete. Yeah, so this is a, 
an area that has actually been talked about for a while. Like low carbon concrete is, as I was looking and doing the research, has been a thing for at least a decade. There's been a number of companies that sort of been looking at this, trying to reduce the the what's called Portland cement that's used in concrete, right? And and that's the thing that helps bind it together. Yeah, um, that's sort of the standard cement. In fact, it's in in building codes is specking. Portland cement. Yeah. And so a lot of the, the companies that have been focusing on this previously have been sort of looking at the, the way to reduce that that element and that, that material in concrete. Um, these two companies are doing is they're both focused on the what's called the ready mix part of the concrete sector, right? So that's the the things, the bricks, the the um, cinder blocks, the sewer pipes, the things that are um, cured and and created and then sold like that, right? We're not talking about the the mixing truck that might show up on your street to, with it's spinning around, you know, and keeping the wet concrete going. This is this is a, a specific segment of the market. But these two companies, I have to admit, part of what intrigued me was they were both based on some research at McGill University, which is my alma mater. So I, I will confess to being intrigued by that link. First of all, but what they're trying to do is go for carbon negative concrete. So they they're using carbon dioxide as the binding agent, right? So basically, the idea is to use elements of the material um, to maybe change certain parts of the materials. You know, so that's part one. But also to use the carbon dioxide actually as a binding agent to to harden it, um, and at the same time to sequester it, right? So it gets that. When that stuff hardens, it's trapped. <laughs> in, I mean, in in the in the concrete. So that's sort of the, the twist on what they're doing. It's a little bit different than in in the past. And they're both part of a, a Carbon X Prize um, competition that's focused on how do you use carbon dioxide for beneficial industrial applications. Yeah, and I don't even think uh, just for context setting, uh, most people realize that the concrete industry is one of the two largest emitters of carbon dioxide, about 5% of worldwide emissions come from concrete. It's a lot of it's from the, about half of it's from the chemical process, 40% from the burning of fuel to make uh, concrete. But this is not just a nice to do. This is one of those, those really energy and as a result, carbon intensive industries. And to the extent that we can reverse that and actually draw down carbon, um, I'm sure there's still emissions and because we still have to heat things and but I'm I'd be interested to you know net net between what you're sequestering and and the uh, presume lower amount of carbon in the production you know how how this compares with Portland cement do you have any data on that well so um the carbocrete folks were saying that like if you take an 18 kilogram um block if you will that it, it would um take three kilograms out so, um, you know, so basically the, the two kilograms that would need, that would you normally be produced, plus it would sequester another. So it, it you know, they, that's the carbocrete model. The, the carbon cure folks, they, they don't provide as much data at this time. And, and, and they're actually, both of them are looking at using um, the carbon dioxide that's being processed already by companies like Praxair and, and so forth. So they're not trying to capture it themselves. They're, they're just saying, hey, here's what we can use to capture. Um, and in the case of carbocrete, they're also looking at potentially how to help like steel. Um, it's a little bit of a circular twist to what they're doing. So their hope is to co-locate at steel factories and use the slag, right, from the waste, that process 
as part of the material and then plus the carbon dioxide. So, well, let's roll over to another topic, uh, fleets and fuels. Um, and this is another one-two punch from you, uh, Heather, and uh, senior writer Cassandra Sweet. So let's start with a piece that you did about Tesla, Siemens, and the race to map the future of fleets. So it was one of those uh, embarrassment of riches, Joel, where every it seemed like every other day I kept getting a little little bit of an update on on something happening in the transportation sector. You know, there, there was a Tesla. You know, the, the tipping point though was the Tesla tractor trailer announcement in in mid November, where you know they they were talking about this massive um, semi and it's it's cool looking. You know, it looks like a Star Wars figure, if you will. But the the astounding thing of uh, that what they're hoping to do, I mean, it's two years out, so who knows, but the battery range on this truck, 500, 500 miles on uh, one charge, the, the sort of plenty of people have been working on the van truck sector for a while, including companies like DHL, which actually bought into this, right? And they had their own um, electric van company that they bought and they're, 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 the interest in their vans has been so dramatic that they're actually going to manufacture them for other companies. Um, they, they, they're partnered with Ford on that. But, you know, the Tesla um, truck announcement seems to be kind of a tipping point of interest in electric vans and uh, trucks and, and delivery vehicles. I think Walmart, if I'm remembering correctly, Walmart uh, is pre-ordered some, so has uh, some of the other fleet um, folks as well. Um, but at the same time, right, so that, that's, there's this innovation happening. There's also movement on both the industry side and on the civic uh, public sector side to get a, get ahead of what we want to want the policies and regulations around these things to look like. So um, you know, as I saw all of these things happening with the innovation, I also was focused in on an effort being led, ironically, by uh, Robin Chase of Zipcar, which of course intrigued me, right, and got my attention, but. It's a uh, sort of a proclamation, of you, if you will, of um, principles that a number of cities and um, nonprofit groups that have a lot to say about the transportation sector and the future of transportation, they've, they've kind of put their, planted their flag and said, okay, we know that you're all working on autonomous vehicles. We know you want to sell electric vehicles into cities, but here, um, here industry folks, here's what we need. These, these models to look like. Um, and so they've, they've, they've planted the flag, if you will. Yeah, so there's like 10 principles about prioritizing people over vehicles, um, support the shared and efficient use of vehicles, lanes, curbs, and land, uh, promoting equity, which is you know making making sure that everyone has access to this, uh, leading the transition to zero emission f fuels and energy. Uh, yeah, and it's it's just sort of uh, in, in things that people who've been tracking this for a while would say, of course, but but really getting cities to really understand some as they move forward to plan this new multimodal integrated uh, electric shared smart connected vehicle world that we're headed towards <laughs> uh, zero emissions and, and on top of all that, what do you what should you be thinking about? How do you not just plow into it without some forethought. Um, and the, the other, I will just bring up the other commission um, just real quickly before we move on to the Cassandra's piece, but there's also an industry initiative led by the Alliance to Save Energy, uh, the 50 by 50 commission. And this is being driven from more from the, uh, the industry side, right? 
the automakers, utility companies are involved and so forth. But their, their goal is to envision ways that the transportation sector could cut their energy use by 50% by 2050. So this is another group that I'm going to be watching, that we're going to be watching. Um, there's five different areas that they're working on, light duty vehicles, non-road transport, so stuff at like ports and airports, heavy duty, fuel infrastructure, um, and shared mobility. So um, that's another, definitely another um, initiative for us to be watching, I think, as far as the shape that these things will, will take. And just one final note on the policy front. I think it's worth pointing out that a lot of the transportation policies across the United States kind of were put in place after everyone started, you know, having two two family two cars per ha per household and driving into the city out of the suburbs and so forth. A lot of the, the transportation regulations in cities and 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 suburban areas rose up kind of in response to adoption. Right? Oh my gosh, we got to we got to regulate this stuff. It came into play so quickly. And I think that that cities and states are really trying to get ahead of this curve, right, on this on this one, and to make sure that it's envisioned together and not um, a reaction to an industry. I don't know if people would consider it as getting in the way. Um, to me, it seems like a more collaborative approach than, you know, what built up in the United States, at least during the last transportation revolution. And of course, one of the things we see on those city streets are a lot of brown trucks uh, from UPS along with trucks from many, many other companies that are now offering not just delivery, but same day, next day, uh, real time kinds of deliveries. Um, and Cassandra's piece looked at how UPS is starting to move to renewable natural gas and, and, and what it takes to do that. Um, they just signed an agreement to buy 11.5 million gallons a year of renewable natural gas from two companies, Big Ox Energy and Amp Energy. This is obviously a cleaner gas. It's um, basically biomethane, which is produced from landfills and digesters at livestock farms and dairies, wastewater treatment plants, some food waste repositories. And it's uh, a fuel that's waiting there for us to extract and no fracking involved. Um, obviously, a lot cleaner. Now, 11 million gallons, 11 and a half million gallons a year is literally a drop in the bucket for a company like UPS, which has a hundred, I think a hundred or so, hundred thousand or so vehicles uh, in its fleet of vans, trucks, motorcycles, scooters, and all the things that it's, it, it's out, it has out there. Um, but it's a good start. And you know what? The thing about this particular development is one of them is that you're going to use the, the natural gas pipelines, right? So one of the biggest challenges that the EV uh, movement faces right now is who is going to build out the infrastructure for charging? Like who's going to own it? Who should someone own it? Should it be a utility company that creates these um, areas where you, you charge? Is it a network of homeowners? Is it a network of businesses? And that question has been really perplexing the industry for a while. Um, you, and you look at something like renewable natural gas, there's an infrastructure in place for delivering it, and that is a that is not a, a that's an advantage that you shouldn't you shouldn't overlook. Um, so I think between this RNG stuff, um, you heard, we're hearing more about hydrogen fuel cells, right, as a, as an alternative, as well in the in the future transportation infrastructure. So this is just a great yeah, it's a drop in the bucket, but it is a um, an indicator that it's not necessarily going to be one fuel, if you will, that 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 
that uh, makes this fleet of the future for vehicle passenger vehicles and trucks and so forth that run it, it's definitely going to be a a very mixed bag when it comes to the fuels that these vehicles use It's Joel again. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you'll check out Center Stage, our new podcast featuring live interviews from Green Biz events. You'll find conversations with notables like Paul Hawken, Annie Leonard, Janet Napolitano, and executives from a wide range of companies. Check it out. Go to greenbiz.com slash center stage or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Joel, you've been busy this week. You had a great story um, earlier on McDonald's, uh, an, an intriguing piece, Can McDonald's Help Solve Climate Change? Your piece is about the uh, carbon farming uh, movement, right, and, and how McDonald's is looking at using an alternative style of grazing called adaptive multi-paddock to transform the way that um, ranchers are, are raising cattle and producing beef. So um, they're, they're putting some money in this, uh, $4.5 million, I believe. Um, that seems like, I don't know, when, when you're looking at McDonald's, it's a pretty darn big company. Is that enough money um, to, to be focusing on this? But, you know, tell us about the project and, and what they're hoping to achieve. Yeah. Well, well first of all, backstory. I mean, I've been tracking McDonald's quest to create sustainable beef um, for almost, well, for five years now. There's a piece that came out almost exactly four years ago, January 2014, uh, where I broke the story that hadn't been reported that previously that McDonald's was on this quest to to create something called sustainable beef. And part of the challenge there was to come up with a definition of what does that even mean. But this is a different little part of that project, which is to look at, as, as you said, carbon farming, which is um, uh, something that's been really growing in, in, in use. And I think it's going to become uh, one of the go-to ways that, that agriculture uh, takes place, at least certain types of agriculture. So uh, a lot of this started with a guy called Peter Bick, uh, who's a filmmaker turned carbon crusader. He produced a 2010 documentary called Carbon Nation. And I have to say that's the reason why I'm in the IMDb, the movie database, uh, because I have a really, really, really short cameo in the film. But uh, the movie showcased a lot of the solutions that were helping to address climate change, including by people who don't even necessarily believe in climate change, but were doing these things for reasons other than environmental. And there were a bunch of farmers in there who were showing off the methods that they were using to enhance soil and raise productivity. And there was also starting to, to understand that this was sequestering carbon in some really important ways while it was uh, enhancing the soil, improving uh, its, its ability to produce uh, with f fewer inputs, um, regenerating itself on a regular basis. So this thing is called AMP, as you said, is adaptive multi-paddock grazing, which basically means uh, you moving cattle around the land in these roped-off areas called paddocks, and, and letting them graze there for a while and then roping them off and sending them to another part of it. It kind of mimics the natural way that animals have, have grazed, uh, herd animals like elk and bison and deer as they move from place to place. What it does is, is the ca cattle are 
eating there, they're pooping there, they're stomping the stuff into the ground, and then they're moving on. And then it, you've got an uh, extended period of time where the grass can regrow, and then it breeds all kinds of other flora and fauna. And what they're finding is that it sequesters huge amounts of, of greenhouse gases, and this has great potential. So, so Peter Bick formed a, a consortium of scientists from around the country, put together this amazing project out of Arizona State University, and and McDonald's invested this, you know, small for them, big for Peter, four and a half million dollar uh, in this. And but what was interesting is to understand how this fits in with McDonald's. Uh, efforts to 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 reduce the impacts of beef because it knows it has to. It's just not sustainable. So it's, it's not the amount of money that's significant here. It's like I said, you said it's a it's a tiny bit for a company as big as McDonald's. But the fact that they wanted to be the the lead on this, and we're not they haven't really put out press releases on this. They're not really looking for publicity. I happen to know about it because I know Peter and I know McDonald's, and they both of them have been talking with me about it. It's not a publicity stunt. This is an effort to really measure and track how uh, do this the hard science about how this works, and if you do A, B, and C, you'll get D result. And once you have that replicable formula, then you can start rolling it out and understand that you know what it takes to to reduce a, a gigaton, a billion tons of 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 greenhouse gases, which is one of the goals to, to reduce this by a gigaton a year through carbon farming. So I have a couple, couple of clips I want to play for you in the conversations that I had in writing this story. Um, the first is is from Peter Bick. I asked him to, to, to tell me a little bit about what he sees out there and, and, and when he's visited all these ranches and then sort of how he's experienced this. And Let's listen. So you've, you've got ranchers that love to see their fields almost look like a mowed lawn where it's all just smooth and it's one type of grass and it looks like you could putt on it, you know. And then you've got these ranchers doing the adaptive work, the amp grazing, where they let the stuff grow to their waist, and they want as many different species of forage as they can get. Like that's like this whole idea of a cocktail mix. Like how many different species can I get out there? And there's all sorts of reasons for that. And the more species they have, the more different the microbial community is in the soil, the more diverse that is. And there's a Penn State paper that between if you have two species of forage versus five species of forage, if you have five, then you're getting a ton and a half of carbon per hectare per year more, according to this paper at Penn State that just came out. So it's a huge thing of what are you feeding your animals? And that has a direct implication to the carbon storage. Okay, there's one thing. But the animal welfare we're looking at in the grazing system is, you know, are they gaining weight quicker than another system? That's like a, a great indicator. They're not stressed and they're gaining more weight quickly. So they're on earth less, emitting methane less, and making the farmer more money per day of the animal's life. So you see that if you have a system where the forage is diverse, our hypothesis is, would you have a healthier animal? And so one thing that, that we're looking at is, um, you've probably heard of, uh, like the animals get this, this stomach worm. And um, that stomach worm lives close to the soil surface. So if you're having them graze low on that sort of lawn looking like field, you're putting their mouth right where the worms live. If you're having them graze where the, where the forage is up by their waist, 
one, it's less stressful for the animal. They're not having to bend all the way down. Two, they're outside of the zone of the worms. But where it's significant from my more layman perspective is if you give them that medicine, then it comes out in the manure and it kills the dung beetle. And the dung beetle is essential to the carbon cycle. And it's also essential to greenhouse gas emissions because if that patty just sits on the ground, it's emitting greenhouse gases and that nutrition's not going down into the system, which is what the dung beetles do. So these animals that are eating higher off the ground don't need the medication. So that's saving the farmer money. So that's less medication, less stuff going into the animal, but it's also making their manure healthy for the system which is then recycling the dung into the soil system, which is producing healthier forage for the animal to eat. So it's, it's, it's systems thinking all the way through. To my experience right now, I've been on about 30 different farms and ranches over the last few years filming, and it's just consistent. Uh, the farmer will tell me they were in debt before they started focusing on soil health and started using these methods, and now they're not in debt. Uh, they're seeing plants growing on their land that people haven't seen in that county for 50 to 100 years and they didn't plant the seed. That the methods they're doing are getting their soils healthy and the soils are expressing that the seed bank is, is there. They were able to weather droughts much better than their neighbors. Just story after story. They're seeing perennial streams that their grandfather told them about, but it's been dry for their whole life. Um, and just consistent stories in dry areas, mountainous areas, wet areas, flat areas. It's not regionally specific. It's, it's, it's the method is what I'm seeing is very successful. And then I talked to Townsend Bailey, who's the director of U.S. Supply Chain Sustainability at McDonald's and who's really uh, heading this up from their end to talk about what's your hope here? What does success look like? Here's what Townsend had to say. We're really excited about it. We we think, you know, I mean, as you said, we think we could, we think it could be a, a game changer. One of the things that I find so inspiring about it is we share more of this with more people, and it's a great example of the the potential for McDonald's. Really, when we when we get behind something to um, truly increase awareness and get people involved, the the fact that it's it's about positive impacts. So often in in the in the conversation and sustainability, it's about how do we re- reduce and less bad. And this is the, the grazing conversation and the, the potential benefits of grazing for, for land, for rural communities, for, for cattle, uh, for greenhouse gas emissions uh, and carbon. It's, I think it, it really connects with people because it's, it's about what positive things we can do. So it's, it's, it's definitely something that we're, that we're looking at is from, from a long-term perspective of where, where McDonald's could uh, something McDonald's could really get behind. So I have to say, this is really interesting. Uh, Whatever you think of McDonald's, you have to acknowledge that they are moving down a path, uh, certainly far, far, far more than their other fast food and and most other food service uh, brethren. It's some leadership here that I'd like to to, to continue to watch and um, be really interesting to see what they and and the other funders of, of this project come up with. And how that transforms how we make food. So as we approach the end of the year, Congress is quite busy in Washington, um, doing all sorts of strange and wondrous things. Um, Lots of legislation winding its way through both houses right now. 
that has a lot to do with the corporate sustainability world. So here to help me assess what's going on and what professionals should be doing about it is our own, very own Cassandra Sweet. Hello, Cassandra. Thank you Hi, for joining Heather. me today. You're yes, welcome. Um, Thank you very much. You and I have been racking our brains over how to cover some of these things for, for weeks now, and we basically finally bit the bullet and decided, you know what, we need to create a guide um, uh, to the proposals that could mean something for the, the clean energy world. They could be disruptive, they could be really bad, but who knows, because they're still evolving in real time. That's right. But you've um, you spent some time thinking about this week, this this issue this week, and uh, you picked several things for us to stay on top of. So I, I want to go through them each, um, each with you, and uh, let's hear your list of the the, the five crazy things <laughs> that um, the sustainability world should be really focusing on out of Washington right now. Okay. Yes. Well, I think that the challenge was that there's so much uh, going on in Washington. Um, you know, there's a spectrum of, of different things coming out of the Trump administration and being discussed in, in either House of Congress. So we really just wanted to kind of focus on like some of the five top things that would really make a huge difference in the renewable energy markets. Issue number one, tax reform. Tax reform. This, this is in the headlines. Currently, uh, both houses of Congress have passed their own version of a tax reform bill. And uh, now they are, as we speak, they are working together to uh, merge both pieces of their legislation into one. Uh, so these bills didn't set out to hurt the renewable energy industry, but they each have provisions that, that could uh, create some hardships. So I'll just go through them. Um, the House bill would cut the value of production tax credits for wind wind power farms by almost a third to one and a half cents per kilowatt hour from 2.3 cents currently. Uh, the House bill would also cut uh, ta an important tax credit for purchasing electric vehicles, which is currently $7,500. The American Wind Energy Association had lobbied really hard against the production tax credit changes that were proposed in the House bill, and we're pleased to see that that didn't appear in the Senate version of the tax bill. However, the Senate version of the tax bill includes two things that would be uh, harmful to renewable energy markets. One is called a base erosion anti-abuse tax, or BEAT for short. <laughs> it's very complicated, but the uh, kind of the end result is that it would discourage tax equity investment in wind and solar projects. And uh, tax equity is when, you know, a big bank or insurance company uses their tax, the, the amount of taxes that they owe to the government to... Uh, basically monetize tax credits that a wind or solar farm has uh, to invest in the project. Uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance uh, has estimated that the tax equity market is worth about $12 billion currently. So that's a lot of money that could be lost. Right. So we now we need to watch the compromises, I guess, on, on, on this, right? So that's right. There's a, there, these bills are very far apart right now. So we need to watch the compromise process, and then, of course, when it goes to the White House, we've got a lot of we got some um, ha things happening on the on the trade front. So tell me what's going on 
Solar Trade, issue number two. That's right. So there was a Solar Trade case that was filed by Suniva and joined by Solar World. Uh, they're both, uh, they both make solar panels in the United States, although they're both owned by foreign companies. <laughs> Suniva is owned by a Chinese company. Solar World is open, uh, owned by a German company. Uh, but in any event, uh, they have complained about very cheap solar panels and solar cells being imported into the United States, which has forced them both, uh, you know, into financial insolvency. And so they've asked for uh, very tough, you know, large tariffs to be imposed on uh, virtually all imported uh, solar cells and solar panels. So the International Trade Commission has been investigating this and, and looking at it and figuring out what to do. Uh, the commission found in September that there was injury being done to these companies by an influx of very cheap solar panels from around the world. Uh, and there are a range of proposals um, that they've come up with, anywhere from like a 35% tariff and, and quotas on, you know, numbers or, or vol volumes of solar cells and solar panels that could be imported from various countries. Uh, they focused on Mexico and South Korea uh, to kind of target with these uh, potential remedies. And the reason that they haven't focused on the Chinese, you know, which is where I think more than half of solar panels are currently manufactured or financed, is that there are already tariffs on uh, solar panels made in, in China and Taiwan. Uh, so it will be up to the president to make a decision uh, because of the, the section of, of law that this complaint was filed under called Section 201. And uh, it'll also be up to the U.S. Trade Representative to kind of make a recommendation to the president as to what he should do. Uh, and the president is expected to make a decision by the end of January. Wow. So okay. the solar industry is pretty united in its opposition. Uh, they're afraid that this is going to drive up solar panel prices and lead to a drop in demand for solar and uh, you know fewer jobs. And uh, a lot of analysts agree with them. So it could it could really slow down uh, the solar power market in the United States. Right. So issue number three that we're watching, uh, something going on with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, a.k.a. FERC. Um, we know that the Trump administration has proposed basically um, uh, what amounts to a subsidy that would help coal That's and right. uh, nuclear power plants recover their costs um, based on sort of the, the changing market conditions. So what's going on there and what should the corporate buyer know? So the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is the the regulator that oversees the nation's uh, competitive power markets. Um, and the issue here is that uh, the, the Department of Energy under the Trump administration has uh, filed a very unusual proposal uh, and also asked for it to be fast-tracked in which the FERC would allow power plants that run on nuclear power and coal to be able to recover their costs from their market sales. And this is something that's never been done or proposed. <laughs> and it would drive up prices for anybody buying power on the market and hand a 
you know, an unfair advantage to uh, coal-fired power plants and nuclear power plants. These industries have been looking for subsidies on the state level over the past few years, as we've seen some uh, older coal-fired power plants and nuclear power plants shut down because they are just too expensive to operate. And uh, the United States has, you know, plenty of power supply, demand has flatlined, and there isn't really a need for a lot of expensive electricity. So the most expensive electricity has been shutting down. This proposal would allow the coal and nuclear expensive electricity to continue operating, and we would all have to pay for it. Do we have an idea of what the accelerated, you know, when the accelerated decision is is due? It's unclear to me exactly how long this thing is going to take, but the FERC uh, is expected to make some kind of uh, ruling on on what they plan to do uh, by the end of December, I believe. Uh, But they could do any number of things. They could uh, kind of lay out a uh, proposed uh, rulemaking proceeding that they're going to do, or they could think about it, or they could drop the issue altogether and and say, no, we don't think this is a good idea. We're not going to do a rulemaking. So there are a lot of different things they can do. Um, You know, companies and industry groups are fighting this and uh, filing comments with the FERC. So anybody who's concerned about this, you know, should feel uh, like they could file comments with the FERC. And one thing I forgot to mention is this issue is so unpopular that it has brought together the renewable energy and oil industries. So they are together, they are united on this, uh, because this would affect uh, natural gas-fired power plants. And so the American Petroleum Institute is very much against this proposal, you know, as are are the big renewable energy industry groups and uh, environmental groups as well. Issue number four, Energy Star. So we reported earlier this year that this pro- this program was um, pot- potentially on the uh, chopping block. So where do things stand now? This is a moving target. Um, Energy Star is very popular. It's used voluntarily by manufacturers of everything from refrigerators and washing machines to, you know, large uh, industrial equipment, uh, you know, building systems, and. Um, it seems from just my very recent research that there's not that much going on with regard to this program at the moment, but it's certainly something to watch. Uh, the Trump administration proposed eliminating Energy Star altogether in its uh, budget for the 2018 fiscal year, but the the issue of the budget is totally on the back burner as Congress focuses on this tax reform bill. So uh, there's another proposal that would uh, make some pretty big changes to the Energy Star program, Um, and that is also unpopular. Uh, The Alliance to Save Energy is working on that, uh, as well as the Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers. So I think the industry groups are are keeping a a close watch on that, Um, and uh, but that would be another thing to pay attention to because this could affect uh, the efficiency of the equipment uh, that businesses and consumers uh, would have access to. All right. Issue number five, the endangerment finding. Okay. So explain to me what is going on. What does that mean? It's uh, I think it's the uh, EPA's uh, finding back in 2009 that 
whoa, greenhouse gas emissions endanger public welfare. Um, That's right. We see people wanting to abandon and overturn that finding. So what's, what's, uh, what's the scenario around this? So that's right. The endangerment finding is at the heart of just about everything that uh, the Obama administration and the previous Congress used as the basis for you know all the proposals and uh, all the policy related to uh, fighting climate change, cutting greenhouse gas emissions. That includes the Clean Power Plan that came out of the Obama administration. Uh, fuel efficiency standards for cars. I mean, y- you name it, just just, just about everything. Um, and, you know, kind of the very far right has been focused on uh, up, overturning this endangerment finding uh, for a long time. I mean, they've had their eye on it. Uh, I won't name the Heartland Institute because if you Google endangerment finding, the Heartland Institute will pop up. <laughs> and uh, they would like to see this go away. Um, just various uh, political analysis that I've read indicates that the Trump administration has focused less on the endangerment finding. They were really focused on repealing, um, uh, on pulling the United States out of the Paris Climate Agreement, which they felt was more important. Uh, but this endangerment finding is another issue uh, that that folks who do not want to see the United States fight climate change, uh, that they are kind of intent on uh, doing away with. So... Um, the the place to look for that would be the EPA and any action that the administrator Scott Pruitt might take. Um, there's been some reporting out of Washington that um, Mr. Pruitt plans to question mainstream science on climate change, and that could be a possible prelude to some other action uh, that he might take to maybe review the endangerment finding or, or do something else. Uh, but but currently, there isn't a proposal on the table with respect to the endangerment finding, but it is something, uh, you know, that people are concerned about. Okay. Well, plenty to watch and actually plenty more that we don't have time to list. But uh, thank you for the research on this, Cassandra. And I believe that this is something we'll be returning to discuss many times in the coming months. Thanks for being on the podcast this week. Thank you, Heather. I'm going to start our next feature by reading a short snippet from our latest book excerpt on greenbiz.com. It is easy to fall into the trap of assuming that the only important climate policy question is what can government do? Even our vocabulary, ranging from terms such as policymaker to regulation, can create a conceptual trap, implying that government is the only actor that can respond to social problems. Instead of asking, what can government do? We should ask, what can any organization do? That quote was from a new book from two Vanderbilt professors. Um, The tome is called Beyond Politics, the Private Governance Response to Climate Change by Michael P. Vandenberg and Jonathan Gilligan. Michael Vandenberg is a professor of law and co-director of the Energy, Environmental, and Land Use Program at Vanderbilt. And Jonathan Gilligan, his uh, co-author, is an associate professor of earth and environmental sciences, as well as civil and environmental 
engineering. I had a chance to interview the co-authors about their book, and I wanted to leave you with two distinct segments from that interview. The first is a conversation with Jonathan Gilligan about the link between environmental action and efficiency, um, and how sustainability managers can take this out of the realm of of um, politically charged motivations, right? Hey, this is the climate science, and instead take them into the realm of business opportunity. So this is a uh, observation from Jonathan Gilligan. Often what companies will do is they think, oh, doing things that are beneficial for the environment are going to be costly. So when they're looking for ways to streamline and make operations more efficient and reduce their operating costs to boost their profit, often they don't look at things like their energy consumption and other environmentally important things because there's an assumption that's just going to cost money. And what Mike and I have found in doing a lot of reading through the literature, through news and so forth, is there are enormous numbers of examples of places where companies have big inefficiencies and they don't realize them until they start studying their environmental footprint and then they realize, oh yeah, Here's a place where we could actually save quite a lot of money at the same time that we're reducing emissions. And so one part is just for companies to be aware that their environmental footprint may be something that's costing them money and there may be opportunities to do some really good triple bottom line work on improving profits at the same time they're reducing efficiency and also improving their standing in the community. And then this leads right into another part, which is, as Mike says, companies can show a lot of leadership and can really uh, do a lot of governance um, so that they can influence others. And a third piece of this then is thinking about the customer base and are there places where in the line of work that a company's doing, it can provide consumers opportunities to more easily improve their environmental footprints. So a couple of examples of this, we've looked at Virgin Airlines realized somewhere around 2012, 2011, that they were not performing as well as other airlines as far as uh, fuel efficiency. And a big piece of their public image is looking at being environmentally friendly. So they worked with some economists at the University of Chicago to study their operations and found that they weren't giving their pilots feedback on how much fuel they were using. Once they realized that, they started providing feedback to the pilots, and this has resulted in reducing greenhouse gas emissions by um, tens of thousands of tons per year, saving them millions of dollars a year on fuel. And when the pilots are surveyed, participation in this program raises the pilot's job satisfaction. So now you've got happier employees, you're saving money, and you're reducing your greenhouse gas emissions. And this wouldn't have happened if they hadn't been paying attention in part to their environmental footprint. So that's one example. Another example on the consumer side is Walmart back in 2006, 2007 said, we're going to really make a big push on making compact fluorescent light bulbs easily available to consumers. They were around, they saved money, it was a great investment for a consumer, but it was a real pain to find them. So Walmart started stocking and publicizing CFLs and within a year they were selling 100 million bulbs a year. More recently with LED bulbs, you put an LED bulb in, 
it cuts your electricity spending and you're spending on light bulbs by about $10 a year. But around 2010, LED bulbs cost about 20 bucks a piece. And so that's a big pain in the pocketbook when you're shopping. Walmart basically looked at its suppliers and said, if one of you can give us a really high quality LED light bulb that's durable, gives high quality light, and it costs less than $10, we're going to help you sell hundreds of millions of them. So one of the companies came through, had the best uh, product in the competition, Walmart started releasing it as a house brand at a less than $9 a piece. And since then, the sales of LED light bulbs have gone from about $30 million a year to about $200 million a year. And some economists are now saying that bringing those LED light bulbs to an affordable level that they're spreading into everybody's house is responsible for the fact that since about 2013, the Average electricity use by a household in the U.S. has actually gone down after rising and rising and rising very steadily from about 1950 to 2010. This has actually turned the corner. Household electricity is going down. And a very big piece of this may be how many households are putting in LEDs, which is then a big piece of that is companies like Walmart really pushing to bring the price down to the consumer. So both in their own operations and in the influence on other people, companies can have a huge impact. And when you start thinking from a, from the point of view of a business, I can be helping the environment not just with what I'm doing, but how I'm influencing other people. Then you see how much leverage there is when people start thinking that way. So every good book has a call to action. I asked um, both Michael Vandenberg and Jonathan Gilligan to weigh in on, on what they're hoping to accomplish with, with their um, new book. And, and it really is short of a, nothing short of a, a conceptual mind change, if you will. Um, and, and, but it's a bit of a chicken and egg. I mean, they do, they do see a role for government. I mean, this, this book does not suggest that, that governments at the federal and state level should not be involved in climate change. It suggests, however, that um, there should be coordinated efforts um, and, that, and that perhaps businesses right now can um, bridge the gap, if you will, and, and keep things moving forward while we, we have some um, things to work out at the political level. So I will leave you with the call to action um, and why it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. The uh, segment I'm about to play uh, starts with Michael Vandenberg and then ends with Jonathan Gilligan. In a way, we're arguing for a conceptual shift as the call to action, which is to recognize that the private sector can make a major contribution, not just by advocating for government change, but literally by reducing its own carbon footprint. And that, that contribution is so large that it can help us buy time for the information about climate to percolate through the system well enough that governments feel empowered to actually respond adequately to the problem. So the real call to action here, I think, is a conceptual change. It's a recognition that the real question isn't what can government do, it's what can any organization do. And the idea that when we aggregate together all the different activities, the, the corporate sector, civic and cultural organizations, religious organizations, universities, and others, we can get to numbers that are large enough that they're equal to some of the largest countries in the world simply going carbon neutral altogether. And that will make a real difference. The health psychologists talk about the need for two things, three things probably, to 
really make a change in, in, in health behavior. One is locus of control. I can control my own behavior. Another is efficacy, which is that if I control my behavior, it will have the outcomes that I want. And the third is to be embedded in a supportive community. And I think all three of those are things that can and should occur uh, when the private sector takes the climate problem uh, very seriously. It can occur because many of the things that would occur to reduce carbon emissions also will save money. It can have an effect because when aggregated together, we're talking about a billion tons or more of carbon emissions, and that's equal to one of the largest countries in the world going carbon neutral. And then what we're seeing more and more with some of the developments that have occurred, we are still in and others in the last year, is that there is a growing recognition that you can stick your head up and that others are with you. Uh, and when you do that, that produces far more gains in the collective than any one company or any one organization could do on its own. And I would just add as well that a lot of the opposition we see to taking action on the part of government is from a very defeatist attitude that says we can't solve this problem, so let's ignore it. We can't clean up our energy supply because that would cost jobs. It would hurt the economic health of the country. And one of the best answers to that attitude is for people who essentially anyone who's in a position to innovate, and this is, again, a place where small, agile businesses can really play a big role. That's just not true. There is a lot of innovation out there in the world, and the more that both individuals and households, but also especially companies, both small and large, show we can innovate, we can solve this problem, we can cut our emissions and grow our profits so we don't have to trade these off, the more success stories there are out there, the more powerful this is going to be then at pushing back against this defeatist narrative that we couldn't possibly address this problem of climate change. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350. And you'll find more about the organization, stories, events, and things we've mentioned in this podcast. And while you're there, look for a link to our newer podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Kind of cool. Hope you can listen. Send us email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And thanks to GreenBiz 350's director, Stephanie Joyce, and our managing editor, Elsa Wenzel. We'll be back next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.